Thank you for listening, and we hope this message will strengthen and help you in your walk with God. Now, Genesis chapter 22, I'm sure you're all familiar with it. This is the story of when God has asked Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And uh, if you read the story, we'll not read the entire story, but I'm sure you're familiar with it. If you read it, it indicates that when God asked him to do this, Abraham did not hesitate at all. Now, Hollywood has another version. I saw a movie years ago made by Hollywood, TV movie, where Abraham cried all night, begged God to change his mind and all that. That's not what the Bible says. In complete obedience to God, the Bible says that he told the men that we will go yonder and worship. And he told the men when they got to the foot of the mountain where God had told him to take Isaac, he said, you men stay here. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and return to you again. And notice it's implying that he's bringing Isaac back. He didn't say, I will go yonder and worship, or I and the lad will go yonder and worship, and I will return. In fact, the message translation actually says, will return. Amen. So he fully intended to bring Isaac back with him. Why? Because God had given him a promise. A promise. And that promise was, first of all, to have a son, which you know the story of Abraham and Sarah how impossible that was. Her womb was dead. Uh, she could not conceive. They're both old when they were told this. And in the natural, what God had promised them was impossible. But they had the son. Through a series of events, they had the son, Isaac. And the Apostle Paul, talking about it later, he says that Ishmael was born of the flesh, but Isaac was born of the spirit. He was, he was born of faith, okay? And now this son has come and God is now asking Abraham to offer him. And once again, without any reservation, without any hesitation, in obedience to God, he takes him to that place. And when he gets to the foot of the mountain, he tells the men, and you can read all this in Genesis 22. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and return unto you again. So he fully intended to bring Isaac back. Why? Because God had made a promise that from this son will come a mighty nation. And dead boys can't produce mighty nations. Amen. 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 So he fully intended for he and Isaac to come back so that they could see this promise eventually be fulfilled. Amen. Now, Isaac apparently, I'm not sure. In fact, the Bible doesn't tell us how old he was at this time. Uh, he, he, some, th some theologians and some commentaries say he was anywhere between five years old and perhaps a young teenage boy, okay? But we do know this. He understood sacrifices because on the way up, he says to his father, Father, we have the wood, we have the fire. Where's the lamb? So that tells us that he had been involved with this with his father before. In fact, 
This is one of the reasons the Bible says that God chose Abraham to make covenant with is because he knew he would teach his children. Amen? And so we know that from this, uh, Isaac is familiar with what's about to take place. We have the wood, we have the fire. Where is the lamb? And then Abraham makes this famous statement. My son, God will provide. Amen. God will provide. Now that is the first time you ever see that statement spoken in the Bible. It's not the first time God provided, but it's the first time that statement was made. And in theology, there is a law called the law of first mention, meaning that once it's mentioned, then you will see that principle carried out from there on. And years later, centuries later, the Apostle Paul picks up on it and says in Philippians 4, 19, but my God shall supply all your need. And it all started with the father of faith, Abraham, when he said, my son, God will provide. Okay? So now uh, Abraham is prepared to go through this in its entirety. We see that Isaac is on the altar, apparently tied to the altar. Now, apparently, uh, Isaac's involved in this faith project too. You know, because what would you do if you said, uh, where's the lamb? And your father said, you're it. <laughs> and did you notice the next verse didn't say? And about five years later, they found Isaac in, 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 in uh, Egypt. No, he didn't run off when he found out he was the sacrifice. He got on that altar, allowed his father to tie him to the altar, and then the Bible says, and Abraham raised his knife to slay his son. In other words, Abraham was prepared to go all the way through this, trusting God, because he knew that God is not a man that he should lie. <clears throat> he knew that God is a covenant keeper. He knew that once God makes covenant, he will not break covenant. And he was prepared to go all the way through to slaying his son, set his body on fire, and then stand there and watch God raise up ashes. He fully intended to bring Isaac back off that mountain. Now, no wonder he's called the father of faith. Amen. The father of faith. And then later, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4, verse 12, that we too, as New Testament believers, are to walk in the same faith as our father Abraham. He's a great example He's our example, praise God. Okay, now, notice that Abraham is willing to go all the way through because he dared to believe God. Now, this is not Abraham's first faith project. Do you understand that? I mean, his first faith project is recorded in Genesis chapter 12. That's what, 11, 12 chapters earlier, when God told him, leave your father, leave your country, leave your family. And in obedience to God, he left. So this is not his first faith project. We know later that God had him to go up against those kings with only household servants, not trained military people, took household servants and went against those kings and defeated them. 
that was a great uh, uh, faith project. Wouldn't you agree? Amen. So this is not Abraham's faith first faith project. However, there's something I want you to see here this morning that I believe the Lord pointed out to me that's very important. And I want you to see in Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham lifted his hand to slay Isaac, the Bible says in verse 13 or verse 12, why don't we just back up to verse 11? <laughs> and the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know. Now underline there, highlight that phrase. Now I know that thou fearest God, for thou hast not withheld thine only son. Notice that phrase. The angel of the Lord says to him, Now I know. Why didn't God say that to him in Genesis 12? He left his father. He left his home. He left his kindred. Why didn't God say, now I know? Why didn't God say, go up against, when he said, go up against those kings and take your household servants and defeat them, and Abraham did? Why didn't God say then, now I know? Why is it years later? In fact, you know that from the time God gave the promise to Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son and this son would become the father of many nations, 25 years later, Isaac was born. 25 years later. That's a long time. And of course, you know, Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 4 and says that Abraham had come to the place where he was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able to perform. That he was no longer moved by the deadness of Sarah's womb, neither the deadness of his own body, but he was fully persuaded that God was able to do that which he had promised. Amen? So why didn't God speak those words in the earlier days of Abraham's life of faith? Now I know. Now I know. Now I know. So we know 25 years have passed from the time the promise was given and Isaac was born. And now it's quite possible that anywhere between five and possibly 18 years as a long, young teenage boy has passed. And yet God did not ever say to Abraham prior to that, now no. Let me tell you why I believe the Holy Spirit said to me, one act of faith does not indicate or prove a life of faith. One act of faith does not prove or indicate that you living you are living a life of faith. You know, every one of us, uh, particularly in our early days of just coming to Christ, you've 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 you remember certain things that you dared to believe God, and you didn't even. You hardly even knew any scripture. <laughs> I remember uh, uh, Brother T.L. Osborne told me one time, uh, he said, uh, Jerry, you still have that young faith. I said, what do you mean by that, Brother Osborne? He said, uh, young faith 
is what I call the faith that we receive when we're first born again that doesn't know the, how to doubt because you hadn't been to church yet. <laughs> you know, uh, you're supposed to learn how to believe God when you go to church, but a lot of people go to church and learn how to doubt. <laughs> learn how to get religious. Learn how to substitute the word or a religious tradition for the word of God. And the Bible says your traditions make the commandments of God of no effect. So Brother Osborne used to say, you have that young faith. You still have that young faith. And uh, I appreciated him explaining that to me. But I remember in the early days of my uh, walk with the Lord, I, I came to the Lord in 1969. I mean, I had experiences as a young boy uh, in a little Baptist church, country Baptist church down the road from our house, a uh, little wood frame, white Baptist church, you know. And I, I remember as, uh, oh, probably nine or 10 years old, having experiences with God. And, uh, and yet I, I didn't, surrender my life to serve him uh, I can't remember a day that I never that I did not believe there was a God I can't remember a day I didn't believe that Jesus wasn't the son of God I was taught that as a young boy I can't remember a day that I did not believe that he died for my sins and that someday he was coming back I believed that all my life I mean you know what I'm talking about amen you know the the very first church I ever went to I was born in Vicksburg, Mississippi on a farm. Uh, my dad was raised on that farm. My grandfather bought it in 1927. My dad was raised there. I was born there. And uh, the first church I ever went to as a little boy, uh, my, my grandfather went to Calvary Baptist Church out on Highway 21, and it was about maybe five miles from our house. But Grandma went to the black church that was just less than a couple hundred yards from our house. I said, Grandma, why do you go to the black church? She said, it's more lively, son. <laughs> he said, I don't like you, Grandpa's church. <laughs> so the first church I ever went to was the black church. And uh, she was right. They were more lively, you know. And uh, I had experiences as a young boy with God. In fact, I heard the call of God at not quite 11 years old in my grandmother's home in Oklahoma City in 1957, watching Oral Roberts on television. I heard the call of God, but that's not what I wanted to do, and I ran from it just as hard and fast as I could. But in 1969, God sent a man named Kenneth Copeland to Shreveport, Louisiana, where I had now lived, or was now living, and uh, was uh, uh, a young businessman, owned an automotive business, and uh, I knew I had the call of God on my life, but I've been running from it. I married a Pentecostal girl. <laughs> That's another story. <clears throat> and she was on my case all the time. And her mother was even worse than her. And, uh, and so they were constantly trying to get me, you know, turned on to God. And the more they preached to me, the further away I went until I got to where I didn't want to go to church anymore. And uh, finally, this Kenneth Copeland come to town, and Carolyn begged me to go. He was there for a week, three services a day, and I, I didn't go until the last night. And the last night, it, I won't get into that because it's another story, but the last night is when uh, God got my attention, and I couldn't run anymore. I didn't go forward at the end of the service. 
And when I got home, I couldn't sleep. I got up at 3 o'clock in the morning, went to the living room. I said, God, I don't know why you still want me. I've been running from you all my life, but if you still do, here I am. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I was gloriously saved, immediately baptized in the Holy Spirit, began speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance, and immediately started having uh, things happen in my life that I couldn't explain. I certainly didn't know anything about faith, you know, but it somehow, I just, I just thought, well, he's God. Why wouldn't he do this? That's young faith. I mean, my attitude was, you don't get to be called God if you can't do the impossible things, right? Now, I didn't have any training. I didn't know the word then, but I just, I just thought, well, if he's God, and he says he can do it, then who's to say he can't, you know? And so I started having things happen, you know, miracles happen almost immediately, amen, with a young faith, amen. But that did not mean that I was living a life of faith. I was having faith projects come to pass, but it didn't indicate or prove that I was living a life of faith. A life of faith takes time. Amen? Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. My wife and I just celebrated 56 years of marriage. 56 years. Now, if I had gone to her as a young husband three weeks after we were married, and I asked her, Carolyn, am I faithful? There's never been a, there hasn't been another woman in my life in three weeks. Am I faithful? Does that indicate faithfulness, three weeks? Ask your wife. <laughs> three weeks does not indicate you're faithful. I've had people say, uh, I, I've been coming to church now for about a month. Am I faithful? Not yet. That's a good start. Keep it up. But that doesn't indicate you're faithful yet. Faithful is measured over a long period of time. In fact, there's a phrase in the Bible, and that phrase is found faithful. Found faithful. In other words, there's demonstration. There, there's there's uh, examples of it. It's, it's, it's a life of faith. The Bible says the just shall live by faith. They shall have their lives sustained by their faith. That means not just every once in a while when you're in trouble and you don't know what else to do and you finally decide, turn to God. We're talking about everyday life of faith. Look at your neighbor and say, everyday life of faith. Amen. So that's why I believe God didn't say to Abraham in Genesis 12 after that great faith project of leaving his father, leaving his country, leaving his family. And God turned to him and said, now I know. No, that was just an act of faith. It didn't demonstrate a life of faith. But now we're talking about years have passed. 25 we know have passed and possibly anywhere between 5 and another 18 years have passed. And God says, now I know. Now I know. Why is that so important? Because that's what I heard the Spirit of God say to tell your pastors. 
today. Now I know. This, Pastor Tom and Vicki, is a now I know moment for you. A now I know moment. Amen. I, I hear God saying, you've demonstrated now for 25 years a life of faith. Not just an act of faith, but a life of faith. Now I know. Now if you keep reading this story, once God says, in fact, I believe every believer should have a now I know moment where God either audibly or through someone or just you hear it in your spirit. Every believer at some point should have a now I know moment where God says to you, now I know, now I know that you're a man of faith, you're a woman of faith that you're going to live this way for the rest of your life. And when that moment happens, breakthroughs start coming beyond anything you've ever experienced before. Amen. So I just want to announce to you guys, this is a now I know moment. Praise God. Hallelujah. Come on, let's give the Lord a good shout. Praise God. Amen. Notice it says, now I know that thou fearest God. To fear God literally means uh, the way it's spoken in this verse. It literally means to demonstrate such great respect and reverence that you're willing to obey without question or hesitation. To demonstrate to God that with great respect and reverence, that you are willing to obey without question or hesitation. It also implies that you're willing to do all that he asks you to do, no matter how impossible or how difficult it might seem. Even though Abraham knew that he was bringing his son back alive, once again, because dead boys can't produce mighty nations, he had to show God that he fully expected him to bring to pass what he had promised, even though God had done it in times past. But at this point, God is now thoroughly convinced that he is first place in Abraham's life. You know, I remember years ago, um, I, as I mentioned, I, I owned an automotive business. Uh, I, re, I, I repaired wrecked automobiles. I, re, I restored classic automobiles, and my dad and I built hot rods and race cars. My dad raced automobiles all my young life. I grew up on racetracks, and uh, uh, dad rode motorcycles. When he came back from World War II, uh, he had a like a 40, shortly after that, he had a 46 Harley Davidson. I don't remember that one, because uh, I was born in 46, but I do remember uh, the old panhead, 55 panhead Harley that he had, and I'd ride on the back of it with him. And so that began my love affair with motorcycles. And, uh, and Dad would take me to the races all the time. I could hardly wait for the weekend. Dad would say, son, be ready. We're going to the races. And uh, Dad raced modified hot rods. He raced stock cars. And then when that season was over, he raced sports cars. He had a a 57 TR3 Triumph sports car that he raced. But when I got old enough, 
I was into drag racing. But that, that, was, that was our life. I was into speed. And I'm, I'm not talking about drugs. I'm talking horsepower. I don't know anything about that other kind of speed. You'd have to ask Jesse DePlantis about that. I don't, <laughs> Jesse took trips around the world and never left his living room. But anyway, but I was in the horsepower, okay? So when, when I surrendered my life to the Lord, uh, this is what I was doing. I had at that time uh, a 1969 Pontiac, I mean a 1968 1969 Triumph Bonneville that I was riding. Uh, I had two 36 Ford Coupes. One was original and one I'd made a street rod out of, you know, put a big V8 engine in it and all that. And then I had a 39 Chevrolet pickup that I'd made a street rod out of. And uh, Dad and I were hauling these race cars and I was racing a 65 GTO on the drag strip, the local drag strip, okay? So that's what I was doing. And when I surrendered my life to the Lord, uh, God didn't tell me, now you have to give up the race cars, now you have to give up the motorcycles, now you have to give up the classic cars. That was a decision I made on my own. And I said to him one morning, God, I want you to know now, even though in the past, this was first place in my life, but now you're first place and I'm giving all this up. He didn't make me do it. Now, there are a lot of Christians that tried to convince me, you can't have that. God don't want you to have that. God won't love you if you have that. And thank God I didn't listen to them. But on my own, I got up one morning and I told my wife, I said, I'm going to show God that he's now first place in my life. She said, how are you going to do that? I said, I'm giving that all away. And I called people who had been trying to buy those cars from me. I said, you still want them? Yes. I said, come get them. They're yours. And I gave them all away. Gave the motorcycle away. Gave the hot rods away. Gave it all away. And I didn't cry when I did it. And as far as I was concerned, that was part of my past. All things are new. Okay? Now, 10 years later, now at this point, 10 years later, I'm in full-time ministry. I'm preaching all over the country and parts of, uh, other parts of the world. And, and a couple came to me and said, Brother Jerry, uh, we got saved under your ministry. We got filled with the Holy Spirit under your ministry. Our, our kids got saved under your ministry. We've learned the Word through your ministry. And we're partners with your ministry. We support you monthly. And we were praying the other day and asked the Lord, what could we do for you personally because of what you've meant to our family? I said, well, that's not, that's, that's not expected. I mean, the fact that you're a partner with my ministry, that, that's a great compliment. I appreciate that. Well, we, we want to do, do something for you personally. I said, well, that's, that's not required, okay? Just thank you for being my partner. They said, well, we prayed, and we asked the Lord what we could do for you personally. And they said, he told us to buy you a new motorcycle. I said, well, I appreciate that, but I haven't asked God for a motorcycle. I gave up motorcycles 10 years ago. I said, uh, thank you, but I I'm not sure you heard from God. And that guy, he I'll never forget, he did like this. Well, you're the one that taught us how to pray. We think we can pray as good as you now. <laughs> 
I said, well, I apologize. I didn't, I didn't mean to insinuate that you don't know how to pray. He said, maybe you're the one that needs to go pray. I said, maybe you're right. So I went off. I said, I'll be right back. I went off in the corner. I said, God, did you tell those, that couple to give me a new motorcycle? He said, I did. I said, why? I didn't ask you for a motorcycle. I don't ride motorcycles anymore. I had not been on a motorcycle. I hadn't been to a motorcycle shop. I hadn't been to a race. I hadn't picked up a hot rod magazine in 10 years. That was all a part of my past. I said, well, why would you tell them to buy me a new motorcycle? I'll never forget what he said for three reasons. And number one reason he said was this. I now know that it, it, I'm, I'm, I'm first place in your life and it will not come between me and you. Amen. I now know that I'm first place in your life and it will not come between me and you. And then he said, now number two, if it brings joy to you, it'll bring joy to me. I thought, boy, that's not anything like I've ever heard before. I was always told if, if, if it brought joy to me, God would be against it. And that's what he said. If it brings joy to you, it'll bring joy to me. And then he said, now number three, I want you to take what once was your passion and turn it into a tool of evangelism. I went back to that couple and said, you heard God, bring me my motorcycle. <laughs> so they did. It was the finest one I'd ever owned at that time. But from that, eventually, I've, I began the Church Light Christian Biker Motorcycle Ministry. And from that one outreach of our ministry, we have recorded, not guesswork, recorded, over 460,000 people have come to Christ through chariots like Christian Michaels in the last 25 years. Amen. Amen. But what was interesting to me was God said to me, and I, I, hadn't, even, I hadn't even thought about it from this verse. Now I know. But I remember that's exact words he said. Now I know that I'm first place in your life. And I know this motorcycle will not come between me and you. And then eventually, he began to bring the classic cars back. He began to bring the hot rods back. I have a 65 GTO again. Hallelujah. <laughs> and it's the finest one I ever owned. Praise God. Amen. But at the same time, you can ask my wife. I have gone out to my shop. And I walk in there and I say, Lord, none of this means anything to me except the fact that you gave it to me. And if you'll tell me who you want me to give it to, it'll be out of this building by dark. And I've emptied the shop. And my wife says, don't you ever do that again. I said, why? She said, you give stuff away and it comes back to you in fleets, you have to build another shop. <laughs> and I do. I don't have a shop now, I have a museum. Uh, <laughs> Amen. Amen. When you make God first place in your life, the blessings are unlimited. Amen. Now, I want to finish up on this. Notice he said, I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thine only son from me. So once again, to fear God, as it's stated here in this verse, literally means to demonstrate such great respect and reverence that you're willing to obey him without question or reservation. 
or hesitation. It also implies that you're willing to do all that he asks you to do, no matter how impossible or how difficult it might seem. Amen. I don't want to miss any of this because I believe it's all important for you to hear. Another reason why that Abraham was so confident that he would bring Isaac back was the book of Hebrews chapter 11 tells us this. Verses 17 through 19, read it all, but I'll just pick up on verse 19. Abraham accounted that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead. In other words, if Abraham had to, had to go all the way out and burn this boy to ashes, he was prepared to stand there and watch God raise him from the dead. Now, I challenge you to show me any other time in Abraham's life prior to this where he saw God raise the dead. There's not another time. What made him think he could raise Isaac from the dead? Complete, total confidence now that what God said, he was able also to perform. Amen. He said, God, uh, Abraham accounted that God was able to raise him even from the dead. But that's not where it stops. From whence also he received him in a figure. That's Hebrews eleven nineteen. What does that word figure mean? It means a picture or an image or something visualized or conceived in the heart and the mind. When God promised Abraham that from this son would come a mighty nation, a vision was formed on the inside of him of God fulfilling that promise. And that's the reason why he was thoroughly convinced that even if I have to kill this boy, I'm going to stand there and watch God raise these ashes because I have seen in a vision, in a figure, me bringing this boy back. Amen. Well, what else could God say to him, but now I know? <laughs> now I know. Have you ever taken your faith that far? Now I know. Amen. So, once again, God says this to him after a long period of time of walking with God, simply because God doesn't say, now I know, from one act of faith. He says it when he sees a life of faith. And the Bible says the just shall live by faith. And that doesn't mean just in the good times. It means in the hard times too. Isn't it amazing how some people, you know, in fact, the Bible says that one of the great sins of Israel was that when they began to experience the abundance that God promised them, they began to back away from God. Amen? See, uh, sometimes it's hardships that lead people back to God. Sometimes it's abundance that drives people away from God because they think, I don't need Him anymore. I'm self-made. Well, either way, the Bible requires us. It's not, a, it's not a suggestion and it's not an option. The just shall live by faith. Let me try this side of the auditorium. The just shall live by faith. Amen. Amen. That's every day of your life. Good or bad times. Depression, inflation, Democrats in office, Republicans in office, 
Don't make any difference. The just shall live by faith. Amen. Amen. So God is saying to you, pastors, that this is a now I know moment. Not because of one act of faith, but because a life of faith. Amen. A life of faith. Can you say amen? amen. Romans chapter 4 uh, talks about this that happened to Abraham where he is now totally convinced that what God has promised he's able also to perform. And it talks about in Romans 4, as I mentioned earlier, that he's an example to us that we are to walk in the same steps of faith as our father Abraham. So when I was praying last night over this service and endeavoring to get the mind of the Lord, I heard him say to tell Pastor Tom and Vicki that this is a now I know moment for them and some major breakthroughs are coming your way. Today, you are celebrating 25 years of a journey of faith and you have proven to God that just like Abraham, you are willing to trust him completely and you are willing to make whatever sacrifices are necessary and that you will never give up until you are completely satisfied that you have completed your God-given assignment. Amen. And for this, we all salute you. Amen. Amen. I think you ought to stand up and give them a salute. Praise God. <clears throat> Amen. Hallelujah. I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't, don't want to miss any of this. I'm just going to read my notes word for word because I got them from the Holy Ghost. Listen to this. In this now I know moment, God is simply saying to you, you have given me evidence of just how much you trust me and that you are deeply committed to doing everything that I've called you to do and that you will do it with great passion and I promise you that the things that you have desired that you've spoken to not many about are about to come to pass. You are going to experience a rapid and much quicker manifestations of your faith as never before. This is now, or you have now entered into a divine acceleration season. Amen. God has seen your faith and things are going to begin to happen at a much faster pace. Mark the second chapter, uh, verses 1 through 12. Turn there with me because this is an important part of this message. Mark chapter 2. And it's the story of a man that was brought to Jesus by some friends who had, uh, was sick of the palsy. And verse 4 says, And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, underline that phrase, when Jesus saw their faith, 
That would be the same thing as God saying to Abraham, now no. He saw his faith. You know, uh, I read in a commentary early this morning. One commentary stated this. It wasn't that God was surprised by Abraham's action. It said he already knew what he was going to do. But now he had the evidence that he would do it. You know, God knows thought and the intent of the heart. Nothing surprises God. Amen. He already knew before this ever took place that Abraham would go all the way. Amen. And, and, and in fact, the commentary said, you have now demonstrated what I already knew. <laughs> I like that. Amen. You have now demonstrated what I already knew. And so here it says that Jesus saw their faith. Now, if you keep reading the story, you'll see that uh, the man was healed. But notice in verse 12, it uses this word, and immediately. And immediately. I call that divine acceleration. When God sees your faith, not an act of faith, but a life of faith, then things start happening immediately. More and more suddenlies start taking place in your life. I've never had more suddenlies than I've had over the course of the last three or four years. I mean, things happen so fast. How many of you have ever sown a seed and before you could actually get it out of your hand, the harvest already came? That's been prophesied. Amen. That, that even before the harvester gets the seed in the ground, the, uh, I mean, the sower gets the seed in the ground, that the harvest is already coming. That's, that's a suddenly. That's an immediately. Things start happening like that when you prove to God that you will not back off. You will not back down. You will not turn back. That this is not, this is not seasonal with you. That this is not something that you're going to try for a while. This is something you are committed to for the rest of your life. Amen. Things start happening more quickly, more rapidly. In fact, I almost don't want to go to sleep at night because I don't want to miss anything. Anybody feel that way? Praise God. Things have just been happening so quickly. It's just amazing. You know, I, I stood on the word and a promise from God to me personally for an international aircraft for 20 years. Because I travel all over the world. I've preached in 49 different nations. And most of the time, I don't just go preach somewhere. I'm a planter. I have an apostolic anointing. I plant churches. I build orphanages. I, I build medical facilities. Uh, we're involved in humanitarian work. And so I've been believing for 20 years for an international aircraft. Now, it's not that I'm too good to fly on the commercial airlines. I'm not. I've paid my dues. In fact, American Airlines sent me two years ago a card where it said, I am now a 4.5 million mile passenger. Does that sound like I'm too good to fly the airlines? No. And that's just one airline. One. Joe and I have flown all over the world on every airline you can imagine. And you talk about a faith project on some of them. I was in Russia years ago, and I found out with the Russian airplanes, 
They spent all their money on military buildup and did not build good airplanes. My wife and I got on an airplane in Russia and it was absolutely jam-packed, overgross. Everybody on there, you know, stacked in like timber, you know. And then they brought in, before we took off, in the aisle, they filled it up with crates of chickens. You try flying about 200 miles with a bunch of chickens. <laughs> That's not allowed on JSMI Airlines. <laughs> okay. But 20 years, I stood. I sowed seed. Every time I heard about a, a colleague leaving for an international plane, I'd sow seed in. I sowed into Brother Colvin. I sowed into Brother Jesse. I sowed into Brother Creflo. I sowed into Brother uh, uh, Keith Moores. I sowed seed in every one of these. And in 2020, in the middle of a pandemic, my international jet manifested, praise God. Amen. And now I can fly anywhere in the world, praise God. I believe I had a now I know moment. Now I know. I wouldn't give up. And there were times when, it thought, when I thought, is this ever going to happen? Especially when I had to go to DFW and stand in line for hours and miss flights and cancel flights. Think, is it ever going to come to pass? But we stood in faith and I had a now I know moment. When God says now I know, get ready, get ready, get ready, as T.D. Jakes would say, things are going to start happening more and more quickly in your life. Lift your hands and say, I receive that in Jesus' name. So notice once again that when Jesus saw their faith, then immediately things begin to happen. I want to encourage you to get ready for more and more immediately. Get ready to experience more and more suddenlies. Amen. God is honoring your steadfastness. And many shall see the blessing of God on your life and on the lives of the people that are faithful to your calling. Congregation people. And they're going to be drawn to you. Many shall see how God is blessing you and this church and they will desire to join themselves to you so that they too can learn the ways of God and also learn the life of faith. Not just acts of faith, but the life of faith. Your influence in this community is going to increase tremendously. And the goodness of God on your lives will be visible to more and more people, which in turn is going to attract them to the God that you serve. Amen. And God didn't leave all of you out either. Because here's what I heard him say. Tell them that a faithful man shall abound with blessings. A faithful man. In Psalm, it says, those who are planted in the house of God, in the house of the Lord, shall flourish. Planted. That's the key word. Planted. 1969, Brother Copeland's second visit to Shreveport, Louisiana. Now, I'm, I, I've gotten out of my business. I'm preparing for full-time ministry. I'm out preaching in the streets of my city. 
Brother Copeland returns for a second visit. And that second visit, he called me uh, out of the audience and said, Jerry, God showed me that you and I will be a team and we're going to spend the rest of our lives together preaching all over the world. And it'll be your responsibility to believe God for the perfect timing for the team to begin. Told me to sit down, then he kept preaching. I, I, I was so young, and the Lord asked my, Lord, asked my wife, I said, uh, what does that mean? She said, I think we're moving to Fort Worth. <laughs> I said, why? She said, he said you're going to be a team. You'll be preaching together for the rest of your lives. I thought, wow, what an honor that would be. So not too long after that, by 1970, we had moved to Fort Worth. And, of course, Brother Copeland's ministry was still in an infant stage in those days. And uh, so I traveled with him everywhere, he and Gloria, and Kenneth Copeland, Gloria, and Jerry. That was the team. He had a, a, his dad worked in the office, had a bookkeeper, one secretary, and that was about it. And so I traveled with him, and, and I didn't preach with him the first year I was with him, but the second year, he started having me do the morning services, okay? Now, I was completely satisfied with, with my role in Kenneth Copeland Evangelistic Association it was, as it was known then. I wasn't looking to go anywhere. I wasn't looking to start my own ministry. I was happy serving Brother Copeland. And I, was, I, was plan, I had planned to do it for the rest of my life. And particularly based on that prophecy, you'll be a team and preach together around the world for the rest of your lives. But then in early or late 1973, um, Brother Copeland was going to be doing a meeting in Long Beach, California. And someone had asked me to come to Hot Springs, Arkansas and do a meeting. And I asked Brother Copeland if, if he would allow me to go do that meeting. And then I would join him in Long Beach after I got through. And he, he said, yes, go ahead. So I did the meeting in Hot Springs and then I flew out to Long Beach and I worked with him in that meeting and preached in the morning services. This was late November, 1973. So when the meeting was over with, then he and I, I don't know why Gloria wasn't with us at that time, but it was just he and I were flying back home in his Cessna 414. And I'm sitting up in the right seat. And uh, back in those days, one of my job was Brother Copeland drank a lot of coffee back then. And one of my jobs was to have a thermos full of coffee, hot coffee. And once we reached our cruising altitude and he sat on the, the uh, autopilot, then that was my cue to pour him a cup of coffee and have it ready. And he'd reach over and get the coffee and take a sip. Okay. So that particular day, I poured the coffee, had it waiting for him. He reached over, took one sip, and he said, when are you leaving? Because I had said to the Lord, the Lord had told me before I ever got to Long Beach, it's time for you to launch out into your own ministry. I argued with God. I said, God, you said we'd be a team. We'd spend the rest of our lives preaching together. If I leave, it'll split up the team. Because most of the time, when an associate leaves, that ends the relationship. Most of the time. Okay? And uh, he said, no, it'll not end the relationship. It'll enable the team to cover twice as much territory with the same message. Because what you've learned from him, you will take.
to others. And I said, Lord, if this is truly you, I'm not moving until you reveal it to Brother Copeland. So he's sitting there with his cup of coffee, one sip, and he said, when are you leaving? <laughs> I hadn't said a word to him. I said, what do you mean? He said, when, when are you launching out into your own ministry? I said, well, and I told him what the Lord had told me, and I said, but I'm, I told him I'm not going to take one step in that direction until he reveals it to you. And he said, well, he just did. And he said, now, I don't want it to happen, but I know it's God. And, and I encourage you to obey God. So I said to him, Brother Copeland, I've got, I'm going to, he said, when are you leaving? I said, and I didn't know because I didn't know this was going to happen. And it just came out of me. My last day with you, full-time employee, will be December the 31st, 1973. This was December the 1st. And I'll launch out in my own ministry in January the 1st, 1974. Okay? And then I heard this come out of me. And I don't want you to call anybody. I don't want you to recommend me. I don't want you to set up meetings for me. And I don't want you to pay me the last month I'm with you. I'm going to give you 100%, but I don't want you to pay me. He said, why not? I said, well, in one month, I won't have a check to depend on from you. And I might as well learn how to believe God now a month in advance while I'm on my own. <laughs> Amen. So that's what I did. I did not take a paycheck from him the last month. And what God blessed me during that month more with more finances than I had made from Kenneth Copeland the previous 11 months. And I launched out into the, my ministry with an office fully furnished, the least paid for for a year, all the equipment I needed, and more meetings that I could get to. What was that? God gave me a now I know moment. And I haven't, I haven't let up since. I've never asked for a place to preach, and I've never, I've never been in want for a place to preach. And the best part is we're still a team. <laughs> we're still a team been preaching together now 52 years out of my 53 now I'm saying that for this reason Psalms says those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish planted where you experience your greatest blessings is where God plants you Let me encourage you this morning. Don't be a church hopper. Charismatic people are notorious. Is this a charismatic, charismatic church? <laughs> charismatic people are notorious for being fickle. Did I say that the way you told me to? No, he didn't say, he didn't, he didn't tell me faith people are the most fickle people on the planet. Baptists are more faithful. You go to a Baptist church, I've done it. I've preached in Baptist church, Methodist churches. I preached in a Methodist church in Little Rock, Arkansas, and gave an invitation, and the first one to come forward was this pastor. I said, did you not understand the invitation? Oh, yeah. 
I said, you're not saved. He said, not like what you talked about. <laughs> I preached in a Baptist church, and I, 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 I did a, a, a test. I walked back about three rows, and I asked a man, how long have you been saved? 30 years. I said, how long have you been coming to this church? 30 years. You got saved in this church? Yes, 30 years ago. I said, does the pastor ever preach something you don't like? Oh, yeah, from time to time. I said, and you're still here? Oh, yeah. I said, why? He said, well, I figured he knows more than I do. I just trust him. I went to a charismatic church after that, and I tried the same experiment. How long have you been saved? Woo, six weeks. Glory. Shondai. I said, how long have you been in this church? This is my fourth one. I said, fourth church? They said, yep, we're looking for the perfect church. Now, I didn't say it, but I thought it. Well, when you get there, it won't be perfect anymore. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> People don't stay where they're planted. Then they wonder why they're not any more blessed than they are. Why they're not seeing more miracles than they see. Why they're not uh, experiencing more of the favor of God. God had a reason for you being planted here. I like what Mac Hammond says. Don't just come for one week. Give us time. Give us time. You can't, you can't, you can't determine if this is where you want to be in one week. Keep coming. Give us time. And, in, 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 and if you keep coming, you're probably going to want to stay. Amen. I am extremely blessed. And I'm not bragging on me. I'm bragging on God. But I attribute that, first of all, to the faithfulness of God and the fact that I've been faithful where I was planted. I have people ask me all the time, why are you still preaching, Brother Copeland? Because God said we'd preach together for the rest of our lives. Not only that, I love the man. Not only that, I owe him my life. If it wasn't for Kenneth Copeland being obedient to come to Fort Worth, uh, to Shreveport, Louisiana, where would I be today? Right. Amen. Where would I be today? So I've remained loyal. I've remained faithful. My, my pastor was Harold Nichols. No, no relation to Bob Nichols, but, but Harold Nichols in Fort Worth was my pastor. And I was faithful to him. In fact, Brother uh, Nichols would tell me, if, if, if usually I would always be out of town starting on Thursday through Sunday. And if I knew I was going to be out of town that week, I'd drive to his house and give him my tithe check and say, Brother Nichols, I won't be at church Sunday, but here's my tithe check. I didn't want to miss getting my tithes in. He said, I wish all of my members were like you. <laughs> the faithful shall flourish where they're planted. Thank you for listening today. We believe God's Word is what will sustain us in any situation in our lives. For more information, please visit us at familywc.org or you can download the app. Look for us as FWC Como. Until the next time, remember, you are God's best.